Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed him. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is God's word. All right, thank you, Tanya. <clears throat> Good morning, Renewal. Good morning. Uh, seasons greetings to you from Carrie and I. Uh, my name is Ron Surgeon. I'm an emissary and slave of the Messiah. And um, I serve here as an elder for this wonderful, incredible family. And I look out among you today and I'm reminded of the true fact that our God reigns. Um, you are evidence that the Messiah reigns today. As I look out upon you and see people who have turned from darkness to light, um, who have embraced Jesus as the king of their lives, you are indeed that evidence this morning. <clears throat> um, this Advent season, I have the privilege of teaching through Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 79, which is historically called the Benedictus in Latin, basically meaning blessing. Um, but it is, it is much more than a blessing. It is a declaration of hope, hope finally realized. Um, if you didn't know, Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And my plan today is to talk through three critical concepts in the prophecy that was just read by Tanya. Three critical concepts in that prophecy. And I would disclose those concepts as we progress today. Um, and as a heads up, which I didn't give to the first service, um, we're going to be heavy in the scriptures today. We're going to be knee-deep in the text. And so what's, what will happen today will be basically me studying the Bible before you. <clears throat> um, so let us pray. Um, King Jesus, Lord of all, I just ask for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, for our sins to be forgiven even as we forgive those who have sinned against us, that you will supply for us today daily bread. And I also ask, God, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your law today. We love you. We need you. We adore you. Come. Amen. On Christmas night in 1776, George Washington crossed the Delaware River with his Continental Army and he was headed to Trenton, New Jersey, um, to attack a set of troops there, about 1,400 soldiers. And his hope 
was that this secret attack, this ambush, would lead to um, the morale of his men being boosted. Uh, what a way to go about doing that. And so he led that attack, and he had plans to lead multiple attacks at once, but some of those failed. Um, but this one attack succeeded. And in 1851, a German artist by the name of Emanuel Lutz um, decided to depict this event to boost the morale of his own people. And today, this painting is located in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I want to take a look at it and ask you a few questions. Now, let's take a look at this painting. Now, as you look at this painting, um, I want to ask you, who is the leader here? Excuse me? George Washington. How, how do you recognize the leader? How do you tell that he's the one leading? The way he's mounted? Okay. Just sitting up there with his knee up. I wish somebody had said that at first. Good. Well done. Well done. And I, I think um, what we see here will tell us what we implicitly believe about leadership or what has been implicitly believed about leadership. Could it be true that we believe that leadership is maybe not doing anything? Could, could it be that we believe that leadership is simply telling others what to do? Could it be? Um, but is that leadership? That's not leadership. That's sort of like managing, right? Um, so let's look at this managing picture. The manager says, go. You go do it. And the leader says, let's go. We go do it. Right? Um, is Jesus a manager in this sense of the word? No. Heads are nodding. No. Jesus is not a manager. Um, we're headed somewhere with this. I, I seriously almost titled today's sermon, Jesus is not a manager. Because of what I was studying. And I seriously almost titled that. Um, he's a leader. Jesus leads. Um, he gets involved in the work. He gets his hands dirty. He's the king who joins us in the fight, in the fight of life. He gets down in the midst of the work among the people and he does the deed. Jesus, he experienced the same heights of joy, the same depths of despair that you and I have felt in our feeling. He knows your journey. He knows your heights. He knows your depths. He's been there. He joins us in the fight. In him, we are presented with an example. He's the king who serves, who gives us an example. And we see throughout his life, he was one who was fully dependent upon the Father, right? And he was one who fully delighted in the law of the Lord. He, he lived this. He, he lived this. He breathed this. And he's the ideal king who fully and finally obeys the Torah. Israel had many kings. And only two of them, out of all that they had, could be recognized as kind of good. David, Josiah, we're not even including Solomon in this. Kind of good. 
But Jesus comes along and he's the one who finally takes this to heart. And he exemplifies this in every aspect of his life, in every aspect of his governance among his people. Listen carefully. All of Israel's kings were anointed with oil prior to taking upon their role as kings. Prior to them taking upon their role, each and every one of them were anointed with oil. As is written of David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, it says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And hear this. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So from the day he was anointed, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, came powerfully upon him. However, anointed as king, David did not begin to reign until he was 30 years of age. Does that sound familiar to you concerning anyone else? 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. You think of Jesus. Um, he, he becomes 30, he's 30 years old. He enters into his ministry. He dies. Uh, he's raised again from the grave. He spends 40 days with his men talking through the kingdom of God. So back to Jesus. He, Jesus, too, he was anointed. Um, as king over Israel by the Holy Spirit coming upon him in his baptism. So in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, we see Jesus. He gets baptized, right? He comes up out of the water, and the Spirit begins to descend upon him like a dove. God anointed him and recognized him as his son right then in that moment. Um, and something that comes to mind for me right now, that I didn't mention before when I taught this is in that moment when Jesus came up out of the water, what did he hear? Come on, talk to me. What did he hear? What did he hear? What was heard? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When did Jesus' ministry start? When he was 30, right? Prior to that moment, what is recorded that he had done that you think would have deserved that statement, that declaration over his life? Nothing. Nothing. But yet God said, I'm pleased in you. You're my son. And in him, that declaration reigns over your life. And you, I'm well pleased. So hear that this morning. <clears throat> so back to Jesus. Um, like David, Jesus began his ministry when he was 30. And after being anointed at his baptism and tested in the wilderness, it says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, just like David, after his anointing. And I just want to mention this because it points to Jesus as being the king, the king who had been long awaited for. And to show us that God was faithful to David, the promise he gave to him that he would never cease to have a king on his throne, to show us God's faithfulness, Luke decides to trace Jesus' lineage 
from Joseph, his believed to have been father, to David, and ultimately to the creator of the world, Yahweh. Which proves that Jesus is the king of the world, basically. That God is reigning through Jesus over creation. He's the leader. Jesus is the leader who obeys his own commands. He gets down in the fight with us. He does not lead from afar. He's not that kind of king. He's the kind who comes down from the throne. He puts on human flesh as the person, Emmanuel, and he gets involved in the fight, the fight of life. And those who obey him experience his presence significantly. John 14, 23 says that he makes his home with those who put his teachings into practice. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. God says that his home will be with you. And our Lord, he ascended into the heavens, but yet he continues with us in the fight, in the fight of life. He continues with us by his spirit. And he says in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he has come in the person of his spirit, living with us in the fight of life. And he's coming back to end all fighting. To end all war, there will be peace on earth and there will be goodwill toward all people. As it says in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. He says, I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, from Euphrates to the ends of the earth. He says he will break the bow of war. He will put an end to all fighting. There will be peace on earth. There will be goodwill toward all people. So now we arrive at the first of three concepts, um, three critical concepts within Zechariah's prophecy. And I just want to study the phrase, the horn of salvation in the house of David. And that's in Luke chapter 1, verse 69. The horn of salvation in the house of David. I know many of you, you read the Psalms and you've probably come across this phrase several times. See, I would lift up my horn. So what does that mean? We're going to talk about that today. So Luke 1, 69 says, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant, David. In scripture, the horn is a symbol of strength. It is a sign of might. And to lift up one's horn is to make a challenge, to boast in something. It means to take pride in something or someone. For example, the Hebrew scriptures tell the story of Hannah. How many of you know about Hannah? You know, she was barren for many years, right? And she had been calling upon the Lord to have mercy upon her and to give her a son. And Hannah, she received um, a son. His name is Samuel. 
And she began to worship God with these words. And here's what she says in the first Samuel chapter two, verse one. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. And the Lord, my horn is lifted up. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. And so you see her pointing to the horn as a sign of strength. The horn is a sign of, of boasting. A horn is a sign of deliverance and success. Furthermore, the horn is used to symbolize kings, mighty kings in Scripture. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, speaks of that. However, we should understand the horn of salvation mentioned by Zechariah as the mighty king from the lineage of David who will finally bring deliverance to his people and ultimately deliverance for the world. As it is written, In Zion, I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. Speaking of the Messiah, Psalm 132, verse 17 through 18. And Zechariah says, This rescuing king, the horn of salvation, has risen out of the house of his servant David, Yahweh's servant David. What did God promise David? He promised him that he would never cease to have a descendant on his throne. He would never cease to have a descendant on his throne. And for many years, Israel did not enjoy that promise. They did not have a king from the lineage of David reigning over Israel. But God is faithful. God is faithful. He swore an oath to David that he would never cease to have a descendant on his throne. And sometime after David, people began to groan in Israel over the fact that this delay seemed like a denial. The delay of God's promise seemed like denial. And sometimes, doesn't delay seem like denial? Doesn't it feel like denial sometimes when things that we believe God has promised us or things that are promised us by people. When those things are delayed, it feels like denial has happened. And it's the same thing happening in the scriptures. So in Psalm 89, Ethan presents a grieving outcry to God concerning his promise to David and its seeming delay because for him, delay from God felt like denial. It felt like God had turned back upon his word. But Psalm 89 also rekindles the hope of Israel, the hope that they would be delivered from their enemies, the hope that God will fulfill his promise to David. They will have a king who will reign from sea to sea, a king who will have dominion over all the earth. So Psalm 89, verse 20 through 29, presents this thought. And I just want to read maybe two verses Maybe three verses from um, Psalm 89. Let's read verse 20 through 22. But I, I encourage you to go back to this later in your own time. And it says, I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. 
The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. Let's move down a couple of verses. Verse 25. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. In verse 27, I will appoint him the firstborn. He will be the most exalted of all the kings on earth. But Israel, at the time of this writing, was away from their, their land. They were in the land of foreigners. They were in exile, slavery, basically. And they weren't experiencing the glory that this psalmist was talking about. However, this psalmist, performing this lament, he cries out, and here's what he says. And sometimes you may feel this way yourself. He says, Lord, where is your former love, which in your faithlessness you swore to David? Where is it? Where is your promise? Sometimes delay feels like denial. And Zechariah, centuries later, he looks out on the pregnancy of Mary and he says, there it is. There's your faithfulness to David. There is the king who will rule from sea to sea. There is God's royal son. There is the exalted of all the kings on earth in the womb of Mary. And through the royal line of David, God would finally come and he will reign over all creation. In Chronicles chapter 29, verse 23, it alludes to this by saying, hear this, this is, this is really deep here. First uh, Chronicles 29, verse 22, it says, So Solomon, David's son, sat on the throne of Yahweh as king in the place of his his father David. So Solomon, David's son, sits on God's throne in succession of his father David. How's it sound to you? He sat on God's throne. And saints, I look out at you and I want you to know that you will sit there one day. You will sit there one day. It has always been God's intentions to rule over humanity through humanity. That had been his, his plan all along. And you will reign on the throne of your father, God, one day. It almost sounds like heresy, doesn't it? Like, is that in the Bible? Um... Let's look at something right quick. I just want to read a couple of texts to you. And I'm deviating now, but that's okay. Psalm chapter se- um, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Um, speaking about the, the, the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, coming before Yahweh. And it says, um, verse 14 of Daniel chapter 7. He was given, Jesus, was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that would not pass away. His kingdom is one that would never be destroyed. And moving forward to verse 27, and this is after the Messiah comes to uproot 
from the earth all governments so that his government would be the only one. And it says in verse 27, Then sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to you. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship him and obey him. Did you hear that? Let me say this one more time. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High, to you. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. You will sit there too with him. So Solomon was keeping the seat warm for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Solomon sat on the throne of Yahweh in place of his father's David, and Jesus sits there last, and we in him. Revelations 3.21, he says, to the one who overcomes, he will sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with the father on his throne. You will reign with him forever over all the kingdoms of the world. So Solomon was keeping the seat warm for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. God would come one day. He had promised that he would come. He would return to Zion and he would govern forever. As it is written of Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Luke 1, 32, 33. His kingdom will never end. So moving forward to the second concept in the prophecy of Zechariah. Seems like I got to get this thing cranking. (laughs) Time is ticking. Yeah. Um, Point two. His holy covenant to Abraham. Um, Luke chapter 1 verse 72 and 73. It says that God will send the Messiah to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his covenant, this was Zechariah saying, and the oath that he swore to his father David. And I want you, as we talk through this, to be thinking that God is faithful. God, God has give, given promises to his people. God will fulfill those promises. God will come himself to bring them to fulfillment. So God promised Abraham that his offspring will inherit the land his offspring will inherit the territory of their enemies. He promised that through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But unfortunately, Israel sinned against God, which led them into exile. And that exile placed them in a predicament in which all the promises of God had come to an halt. The promises that were to go out to the nations, the blessings that the nations would inherit it, came to a halt because of sin. And the only way these promises would be unleashed 
is that forgiveness of sins would finally come. And so God promised that he would come and he would forgive their sins. Micah chapter 7, verse 19 and 20. And it says, Micah chapter 7, verse 19 and 20. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread, you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors in days long ago. This was written hundreds of years ago before the Messiah came. God promised it, and God made good on his word. He made good on his word. And so Israel's experienced the seeming absence of God's promise. But God said that he would come, he would redeem, he would restore, he would forgive their sins, and blessings would go out to all the people of the world. And now we are brought to uh, the last point in our outline. Yahweh would return to Zion. He would return to that land. He will return to his people. Code word, Zion. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Hear what Zechariah says. And he's so excited because he, he, he's been hoping for this. Remember, this is a declaration of hope. He's been, he's been expecting this. The whole nation has who, who, had, who are really following the, the law, who had really given their lives over to Yahweh. They had been expecting this. And he says, praise be to the Lord God of Israel because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He saw fulfillment of that of God's promise to them when he looked at Mary and saw her carrying the Messiah. So as we come to a close, we see that Yahweh promised that he would return to Israel as their king and restore them. He would bring them out of exile and he would rule in their midst. As it says in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. He was coming. And um, Isaiah chapter 52, it says, verse 8, Listen, your watchmen, speaking about the watchmen who look over the city, the watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. This was in Zechariah's mind when the Messiah showed up in the womb of Mary. Just to bring some context to that. And for centuries, Israel had been waiting for the return of the king. And among many things, his return meant the forgiveness of sins. His return meant judgment for the nations. His return meant a, a, an end to all kinds of war. His return meant a restoration of his government. His return meant peace on earth and goodwill toward all people. And we didn't see all of that happen when the Messiah first came. 
But I want to tell you, delay, delay is not denial. Preceding Yahweh's return to Zion, it was prophesied that a messenger would come and prepare the hearts of the people. And so in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, God says that before I come, I'm coming Zion. He said, but before I come, I'm going to send a messenger before me to prepare the way. And in chapter 4 verse 5 of Malachi, God says that this person who would come and prepare the way, he's going to bring fathers and sons together. He's going to restore families. He's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But did Elijah come? Who was the messenger? Over 500 years later, guess who showed up on the scene saying, Zion, your God reigns. The kingdom of God is arriving. And the one who is coming after me, I can't even bend down to tie his shoes. John the Baptist showed up, who was preparing the way for whom? But Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says that who was coming? Yahweh was coming. Thanks, Kerry. Yahweh was coming. The one who said, let there be light and there was light. The one who split the Red Sea and his people crossed. He was coming back. But Jesus showed up. Jesus is Yahweh. He fulfilled his promise. He returned to Zion. And they didn't recognize him. God made good on his word. So Yahweh returned to Zion in the flesh as a Jewish man by the name of Jesus. And even though he died and rose again to new life, He's still Jewish. He's still in human flesh. With his arms open wide to all people. Declaring that he is the one who will bring peace. He's reigning now. In midst of darkness. And he's orchestrating history. Toward the fulfillment of all his promises. He's orchestrating history toward the downfall of all of his enemies, human and spirit. And in the meantime, as he reigns midst the darkness, we will suffer in the fight. Hard times will come. Hard times have come. Hard times are coming. Through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom, but we must endure in faithfulness to him to the end. And Revelation says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And Amos says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. Revelation 12, 12, Amos 6, 1. And God wants to move us beyond complacency. And we will, as we move, Overcome through the sacrificial death of Jesus in the word of our testimony. And soon, very soon, like the wise men who looked up and they saw the star of David and that star led them to where the Messiah was. As they saw the sign of of the Messiah in the heavens, 
very soon we too will see the sign of the Son of Man. And we will say, as John said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is, who was, and who is to come. He's the Almighty. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he be feared while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like the showers that water the earth. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes fall down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. And he saves the lives from the, of the needy. From oppression and judgment, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him and prayers made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May the land produce much grain, an abundance of grain, and on top of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like, be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever and his fame may continue as long as the sun. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous works. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Psalm 72. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I wanted to present um, this teaching this way so that we could remember that we, we're, we're not Christians in a vacuum. We have entered into a story. And this story has great and wonderful promises. And we're in the midst of that. And God is faithful. He'll make good on his word. Amen.